You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. I'm Oliver Reihart, Director of Fellowship here at the RSA, and I'm delighted to welcome you all for today's lunchtime talk. It's my very great pleasure to introduce this afternoon's distinguished guest speaker, Robert Schiller. Robert is Sterling Professor of Economics at Yale University, and I've just learned is also President-elect of the American Economic Association. One of the world's leading authorities on financial markets, behavioral economics, macroeconomics, real estate, and statistical methods, he is also one of our most interesting and insightful contemporary thinkers on public attitudes, opinions, and moral judgments regarding markets. In 2013, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, jointly with Eugene Fammer and Lars Peter Hansen. Professor Schiller writes, comments, and broadcasts widely and is the author of many highly regarded and award-winning books, including Irrational Exuberance, The Subprime Solution, Animal Spirits, which he gave a talk about a few years back at the RSA here, and Finance and the Good Society. His latest book, Fishing for Fools, The Economics of Manipulation and Deception, co-authored with Eugene Akerlof, George Akerlof, sorry, has recently been published by Princeton University Press. In the book and in this talk here today, Professor Schiller warns that for too long we have believed that markets are generally benign institutions geared to deliver us material well-being, when in fact manipulation and deception are integral to how markets function. So, what needs to be done to ensure that markets help rather than harm us? Here at the RSA, we're exploring questions around the reform, regulation and redesign of our economic system so that it produces fairer outcomes for everyone. So we really couldn't have a more welcome and expert guide to help us navigate exactly these type of issues and questions today. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Robert Schiller. Well, thank you. Uh, as Oliver said, I was here in 2009 for a book that I wrote with the same co-author, uh, George Akerlof, called Animal Spirit. So this is part two of a sequence. I don't know if there'll be a part three. Uh, I was interviewed, we were together interviewed by uh, Jason Swig of the Wall Street Journal, and he said we set an important milestone. He said this is the first time he could recall where a book jointly authored with two people had a sequel. He said almost always when two people write a book together, they get a divorce right after. Uh, so I have to say that uh, we actually had a uh, rather intimate writing relationship in that uh, I crossed out things that he wrote and he crossed out things that I wrote. It got a little bitter at times because we ended up crossing out most of the book. Uh, it's been distilled down and reworked a great deal. So the first book, uh, and probably no one here was in my previous talk, you were, my rig, was I remember. Uh, the, the, both of our uh, books are about um, maybe misguided emphasis in economics uh, and trying to bring economics closer to reality and particularly human reality. So the, the first book, Animal Spirits, was really about a reinterpretation of John Maynard Keynes. Have you heard of him? He was a Cambridge... Uh, what was it King's College, Cambridge, uh, who wrote a book in 1936 that laid the foundations for K 
Keynesian stimulus, uh, the stabilization by the government, uh, which has remained controversial ever since. Uh, what, I, what, what we thought about Keynes is that there was a lot of subtlety in his book that fell, uh, th they must have inspired some people who thought it was a great book. I think it's the most important book of the 20th century. But it just didn't fit into the paradigm of thinking of that day. And he wrote it in 1936. One year later, Sir John Hicks wrote an article called Keynes and the Classics and Interpretation that reinterpreted Keynes and put it into mathematical framework uh, and curve shifting. Economists like to shift. You've studied economics? You have supply and you demand. And you, de you shift the supply curve or the demand curve and you know what I'm saying. I've, I've discovered that there's a bias toward that kind of economics. Uh, I've discovered this personally. That's the easiest way to give an economics lecture. Once you know these diagrams, it's easy. And it, you can write good exams. <laughs> anyway, they're clear-cut problems. But the problem that, that Keynes was getting at, and I think that we're trying to get at too, is that these problems are not so clear-cut. They involve issues that economists are uncomfortable with like psychology. So Keynes, writing in 1936, used the word once in his book, animal spirits, that ultimately he thought the economy is driven by some kind of changing psychology. Animal spirits means your animating spirit, what makes you go, what makes you get up out of bed every morning and ready to face the day. It's a psychological thing. And I think our understanding of human nature is getting much more complex now. We have a whole new field called behavioral economics that's informed by psychology and now by neuroscience and, and uh, computer analogies. Our whole view of human nature is changing and economics has to change with it. So I think that Keynes was a creative thinker who was ahead of his time. He wrote things that inspired people but it didn't connect for them and we tried to make a connection uh, in that book. Uh, so in the present book, uh, we are again looking at the foundations of economics uh, and trying to correct possible misinterpretations. Uh, economic theory is actually very important because it, we, we tend to fall back on the theory in ambiguous situations. There's also something called theory-induced blindness. This is a term that I associate with the psychologist Danny Kahneman, that uh, e scientists are supposed to be on the lookout all the time for disconfirming evidence for the prevailing theory. But in fact, human nature is that we're not very good at that. We tend not to see the evidence against our theory until someone lays it out aggressively. So, so what we think there, there was something... Uh, of a revolution in economics about a half century ago. It had a political ramification too. This is free markets, a, a greater respect for free markets and disrespect for regulation. So we call it the Thatcher-Reagan revolution. Uh, but it's not really a political thing we're talking. We're talking about economic theory. Uh, and there is an idea uh, in economics that is very interesting and we were interested by it too. <laughs> we, we, studied it, but had a sense that uh, maybe it's not as universal as we thought. And this is the idea of the perfection of free markets. 
that they should be completely left alone because the freer they are, the more perfect they are. Uh, that idea is attributed to the Scottish economist philosopher Adam Smith. You've heard of him, who wrote in 1776. But as a matter of fact, so he, he wrote that his most famous phrase is, um, I can't quote it exactly, but it's not to the benevolence that I get my dinner from the butcher, the baker, or the brewer. It's from my appeal to their self-interest. So he talked about the, a world in which you have philanthropists and do-gooders who are basically worthless. <laughs> they don't do anything. It's the butcher, the baker, and the brewer who are doing something that people will pay them for that matter most in our society. That's become a caricature of Adam Smith. As a matter of fact, he didn't believe that fully either. That was one moment in his writings. He wrote another book in 1759 called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And on the first page of that book, he said, people are not completely selfish. There is an altruistic element in human nature. So even he didn't believe his own theory. Uh, so what we are talking about in this book is about a human tendency for manipulation and deception. Uh, we're not negative about people. We, we think, agree with Adam Smith that people are helpful and they want to be part, a contributor to society. But on the other hand, they can get sneaky a little bit. Uh, we actually don't report this in the book, but I was just thinking, the research of Dan O'Reilly, who's a professor of uh, economics at Duke University, well, he did a lot of things to test whether people are completely honest. And he did experiments in which people were given reason to believe that they could cheat and nobody could ever possibly know. And they found out that most people cheat a little. His conclusion was people do value their integrity, but a little bit of cheating is, they can't resist the temptation. One experiment he did is he put six bottles of Coca-Cola in a communal refrigerator uh, and six dollar bills. And then he came back two weeks later and found that all the Cokes were gone. So they were all stolen. But the six dollar bills were completely untouched. So what he concluded, and it, with more experimentation, is people think, well, maybe it's okay. I have deniability. I grabbed that Coke. I thought it was mine, you know. <laughs> Uh, so they thought it was all right. But they're not going to take somebody's money, right? So that was all still there. Um, so that's the kind of world we live in. And we wanted to think about what that means for uh, economics. You know, the, the thing that we emphasize in this book is that uh, in a modern free market economy, organizations develop built around human weaknesses, ability to take advantage of people and their weaknesses, and uh, that we call fishing. Uh, fishing with a PH uh, entered the Oxford English Dictionary 20 years ago. Uh, it's a new word, and it refers to a certain kind of internet fraud. But we wanted to use it more generally as a metaphor for any kind of manipulation and deception. And so uh, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, and we also, we also uh, do you have it up here? You crossed out the, it should say 
fishing for fools, the economics of manipulation and deception. Um, fool is spelt with a PH. That refers to most of us present, I suppose. It doesn't mean a fool with an F. It means somebody who hasn't appreciated the magnitude of the fishing that's going on. So the, the idea is that you don't know your own brain bugs, but professionals do. And you lead, lead a life of an illusion of self-direction when you're in fact being directed by others. Uh, so the idea is uh, that we draw with numerous examples in the book is that professional organizations thrive on little quirks in your, uh, in your ability to re re uh, repel uh, manipulation. Harmless often, but uh, I, I, I don't know, there's so many examples. There are other books that have been written, but we're, we're trying to put them together into a, a, a different view of the world. Uh, there was a book in 1957 by Vance Packard. Both George and I read it as teenagers. <laughs> okay. it's been, it, it changed my life, uh, that book. I stopped watching television after that. I didn't want any more ads. But one thing that uh, uh, was reported in that book is there was an experiment with smokers. They used to advertise cigarettes in those days. Experiment with smokers. Uh, to see if they could tell their own brand apart from other brands. And the conclusion was, nobody can tell, generally. They all taste pretty much the same. But why is there all this brand loyalty? Well, it turns out, marketers have created that. And the way they do that is they graft <coughs> stories. In other words, they find that you have a... People, what matters to people very much isn't how the cigarette tastes. They don't really care. They all taste pretty much the same anyway. What they care about is what it says about me. Uh, and so uh, uh, it, cigarette advertisers uh, work, use an experimental approach. This is a 20th century thing, experimental approach to defining an ad. So uh, Marlboro cigarettes invented the Marlboro man. Do you know this? Uh, older people who remember cigarette advertising. <laughs> Uh, they, but the way they did it was with experimentation. They tried many different figures, uh, uh, occupations, smoking their cigarettes. And one of them was a cowboy, uh, tough-looking, rugged guy. And for some reason, that ad worked. So they, they just went worldwide with it. It turns out people in India like the, the Marlboro Man, too. <laughs> they experiment separately with each country. Uh, so there, there's something discovered about what's attractive. But what it, it links it to your personality. Uh, so in our book, these, these themes, you've probably heard it. There's a consumerist movement that warns people against being seducted by, seduced by ads like this. Uh, but we think that there's something more fundamental that, uh, that has not entered economic theory. So if I can be a little bit academic, we're, we're academic here, right? Uh, there's a, people who take courses in economics, either at the <clears throat> undergraduate level or at the PhD level, are generally taught something called the fundamental theorem of welfare economics. Uh, so what is that theorem? Well, th th this is a construct uh, that economists lay at the core of economic theory. The idea is that each person has a concept of his or her own utility. 
there's a utility function that uh, has arguments, this is a little mathematical, in uh, the amount that you consume of various products. And the outcome, the, the dependent variable, is utility. That's the word they use. What is utility? Well, they would refer back to the philosopher Jeremy Bentham, who, who did a very practical version of ethics. He said, ultimately, the only thing that matters is human happiness. But he called it utility. There was some fishing going on here. There was some marketing. Economists loved this term because it kind of equated... Happiness has a sound of maybe frivolous happiness. Utility means useful, good. So they said, let's call it utility that people maximize. And the fundamental theorem of welfare economics says that in a free market competitive equilibrium with no externalities, the resulting equilibrium is... Pareto optimal. Now, Vilfredo Pareto was a Swiss-Italian economist writing around 1900 who said, who, who actually anticipated the whole fundamental theorem. He was trying to say what's good about free markets in the abstract. And he wrote down this idea, Pareto optimal means that it's impossible to make anyone in the equilibrium, the free market equilibrium, it's impossible to make Anybody better off by reallocating consumption goods without making someone worse off? There's no way to make everybody better off. And he said, uh, at that time, Pareto said, this should be the objective of an economist. We don't talk about taking money from one person like Robin Hood and giving it to another. It's all about making everybody better off, and we should confine our attention to that. If that's what you take and you believe the fundamental theorem of welfare economics, then the job is done. All we have to do is campaign against tariffs, taxes, regulations, anything that interferes with free markets. It works on the assumption that everyone knows their own utility. The problem with that is that um, uh, people don't know their utility. And in fact, what is this utility? The first person to criticize Pareto optimality was Vilfredo Pareto himself. He said, I was only kidding when I wrote that. Well, I, not, that's not a quote. But he became a sociologist later in life. And he thought that human society is much more complicated than he uh, suggested. In 1918, uh, Irving Fisher, a professor at Yale University, wrote an article in the American Economic Review, which is our publication. Uh, the article said, I think they should change the word. They can present this theory as an example, but we shouldn't call it utility. And he hunted around for what is the right word. Maybe we should say happiness or felicity or... But then he said, I think the right word is wantability. He coined that word. Wantability means something you think would make you happier, but maybe it won't. And uh, that article, I, I, I do a Google Ngram search. That's such a unique word that was invented by one man, Irving Fisher so I can track its use through history. For the next 20 or 30 years, it was used frequently. And then it tailed off exponentially after, say, 1950. And then when Margaret Thatcher became prime minister, it hit zero. And the word is completely forgotten now. Economists I've asked, they've never heard of it. But I think that's what we should. So I should just, maybe just give you, there's so many, I give you the example of the Marlboro Man. That is really silly, isn't it? This macho-looking cowboy. They've reproduced them all over the world. 
just because some men like to think they look like that or something like that. But there's, uh, there's many. I'll give you one other example uh, and then, uh, that we talk about, and it's the slot machine. This is what we opened the book with. The slot machine, the gambling machine, was invented in the 1890s, and it soon became apparent that it's addictive. Most people aren't addicted by it, but be careful playing that machine. You might be one who is addicted, and it ruins their life. They just want to play it constantly. What it seems to be is there's some kind of loop in the brain that when you, when you pull the lever, or now it's press the button, uh, you get a, a thrill of anticipation. Maybe I won. Now neuroscientists will tell you that the brainstem, the reward mechanism, are sending out a reward signal, even, in, even though you haven't won. Uh, and then that signal fades, and so then you want to pull the lever again. Some people, there's something missing in their brain saying, you've got to stop. <laughs> this, this is not going to stay here all day, losing money every time, uh, or almost every time. Uh, but those machines are now growing as a percent of gambling revenue. Gambling used to be, let's have some friends over for a play, a game of poker, it was social. But now you have gambling casinos with slot machines. They now have learned through science of uh, gambling that people are a little bit ashamed to be seen with the slot machine. So they try to arrange them so you can find an off-the-way place to do your gambling where no one will see you. Uh, and they also make sure the optimal time between gambles is three and a half seconds. If, if they slow you down so you're not pressing the button every three and a half seconds, you might stop. And they don't want you to stop. So it used to be that when you won, you have to win occasionally. Coins would come pouring out. And then, but you have to do something with these coins, right? You have to scoop them up and put them somewhere. And that makes the three and a half second rule. Uh, you've just lost the loop. And a lot of people will stop at that point. So now what they've figured out is they don't do that. They, they have a computer simulation of the sound of coins tinkling. And then... And then the, the, you cannot break the rhythm. Are they doing this in your interest? Absolutely not. It's profit-centered. And the, the, the problem with a fishing equilibrium is that you might say, I wouldn't do that, but there will always be somebody else, as long as there's a profit incentive. Moreover, they will put these slot machines wherever they can, because each one of them works. So if we didn't have regulation, I don't know the regulations in London, but I know that we have it. Because if there wasn't a regulation, there would be a row of slot machines over there and another row over here. If you don't believe me, go to Las Vegas, and that's what it looks like there. But even in Las Vegas, regulators are there. Somebody recently aired a proposal to the Nevada Gaming Commission that we should create gambling opportunities at cash registers of convenience stores so that when people get their change back, they can gamble their change. And even Nevada thought that wasn't okay. <laughs> so some of these things are very important. Gambling, by the way, is, uh, is an addiction which causes uh, marriages to break up, families to be distressed, people to go into poverty. It, it has a real cost. There's health issues. Junk food is, prom is promoted. There's a tendency for people to spend too much and go into uh, uh, bankruptcy. One, in the US, 1% of households declare bankruptcy every year. They're ashamed, so you don't hear about it. Uh, but it's uh, alcohol. 
are, are they still advertise that? Cigarette advertisements are gone, but uh, it's partly because there's a, a, a view that a glass of wine a day is good for you. Uh, we were going to put the, our skepticism of that claim in our book, but George wouldn't let me because we're not medical people. I, I can just tell you this. There are medical articles questioning whether that glass of wine is really good for you. Uh, but I'm, I'm just still troubled by the ads that we see for alcohol, given that uh, they show happy young people drinking together on TV. The 30 seconds, the most beautiful people you'd like to be are drinking together. I think it's creating an atmosphere where it's hard not to drink because people think that you are some kind of nut. It's all, we've seen it on modeled so many times on TV. And in fact, alcohol is a serious problem in our society, not just because of death due to alcohol, which is a substantial cause of death, but in the way it damages human relationships and marriages. Particularly when one member of a couple is an alcoholic, it's, it, there's studies of this. It, it kind of ruins the relationship. It, it destroys intimacy. Uh, it's a serious problem even today. Not that I ha we have any simple solution, but we have to realize that fishing plays a role. But I want to just conclude with some uh, optimism. Uh, and, and actually, it's more than optimism. It's about why our society works as well as it does. There's a tendency in modern US, UK, and other countries to think that our success is exclusively explained by our commitment to individual freedom and free markets. Well, I think that's a half-truth. It's partly explained by that. But it's also explained, I think, by our commitment, our sense of civil society. What makes a nation successful? This is subtle, but I think the UK and the US are both well along on civil society. By the way, I have a habit of calling the UK our mother country. Uh, it really is our mother country in the US. But nobody says, I don't know why, there's some re resistance to saying that. But there's something about the culture here, which is a civil society culture where people get together in places like this and talk. They view the government as their servant. They're ready to vote the guy out the minute they don't like him or her. They are uh, opinionated. Uh, they have a sense that nobody else is taking care of this problem. I will. There's also a philanthropic. Uh, RSA is nonprofit, right? That's another example right there. Uh, and these things are then spurred by individuals who are not necessarily doing it as part of their job. It's out of personal sense of integrity. So what I've been doing in the United States, I just did a, a two-week book tour in the US. I give some examples of heroes, of people who led social movements. These are events like the anti-tobacco movement, which was a big success. Uh, people who led those things, I said they should be our heroes. So I, would, I called out to my audience, uh, what do you think of these people uh, who I think are really our heroes? Uh, I'll tell you what happened. Almost, to a, almost nobody had heard of any of these people. <laughs> so we remember as heroes comedians, novelists, singers, actresses, all these useless people generally, <laughs> who, and the people who really changed our lives. So I'll try out one American example, uh, and I, I'm, I would be amazed if any of you heard of these people. 
Uh, Alice Lakey. Good, that's what I expect. No one can tell who she is. Or Harvey Washington Wiley. Okay, well, you're excused because those are Americans. But I found their British counterparts. Okay. Otto Hainer. Okay, now, I, am I being offensive here and asking? Uh, or Charles Casal. Or were those, no one recognized. Those were the people that brought in the uh, food and drug regulation at around 1900. Well, I'm a little embarrassed to say this. There's something called American exceptionalism. You heard of this? Uh, Americans are given history in school that they have one lesson on world history. And the one lesson says there used to be kings and feudal wars, and they were all fighting each other. We're, and then America was born. <laughs> and then it was freedom and democracy. Uh, and so we don't know anything. But I've been trying to resist it uh, all, all this time. Uh, but so what, the embarrassment is that we talked about, we didn't talk about Otto Hainer. We talked about our American heroes uh, who uh, in the beginning of the 20th century pointed out through experimentation and argumentation that most medicines that were offered in drugstores were frauds. It was absolutely astonishingly bad. They analyzed what was in the ingredients of these medicines. It would say, Dr. Swain's panacea, and it claims it would cure everything. So we look, what's in it? Sugar, artificial coloring, and then maybe some herb uh, that had never been studied. But even that, the herb wasn't consistent. They would get another sample, and it wasn't there in the other sample. They had substituted something else. So that is a total fraud. And yet, it, it took someone campaigning against it. So my embarrassment, so in 1906, the U.S. Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, created the F uh, Food and Drug Administration that tests drugs for safety. Uh, and uh, the, the embarrassment is that I discovered the U.K. did the same act in 1899. <laughs> it was seven years before us. So I, I have another book to recommend, which is especially important that Americans read it, but you could read it too. Uh, 20, 20 years ago, uh, uh, the book was called uh, Atlantic Crossing by uh, Rogers, Professor Rogers at Princeton. The book argues that ideas were going back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean between America and Europe for a hundred, hundreds of years, but he, he concentrates on a century of great progress from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century. Uh, and nobody knows it. That's because politicians will never tell you in the United States, no politician would say, I'm proposing the Food and Drug Administration. We're copying what the Brits did <laughs> seven years ago. There's no, no one's going to make you tell the secret, so everyone thinks that their own country invented this. But nonetheless, Harvey Washington Wiley and Alice Lakey are still heroes for promoting a new idea. And it's an idea about government intervention with market solutions. Uh, and the government intervention should not be considered evil, as it so often, the, the, the theory that's prevalent these days uh, marks these things as evil. And it underestimates the importance of civil society. Uh, it's not all of us just deciding what we will buy and withdrawing our purchases from the producers we don't like. It's getting up and talking and complaining and uh, 
it's not just the government. It's, it's nonprofits, it's organizations, and it's business as well, business societies. All of these make for a successful economy, and I'll stop with that. Thank you very much for that great talk. Um, I thought it was interesting you ended with government because it feels like at least the zeitgeist in the UK is for deregulation and that there's too much it red tape. It has been for a half century now. Yes. Uh, yeah. and, yet, and yet you talk about the fact that Adam Smith recognised that the free markets weren't everything. You talked about Pareto recognising mm-hmm. his model wasn't optimum. You talked about Keynes's um, animal spirits and... You know, Danny Kahneman, who you mentioned, has been doing research since the 70s showing that human behavior isn't rational. So why, why do you think this free market orthodoxy is, has such a grip on us? Well, it has some important value. Some things that Thatcher and Reagan did were valuable in that they're off, the, the complaint that uh, was made against regulation was that it can be captured by the regulated. So, for example, we had fair setting Right. In the U.S., uh, maybe in the U.K. too, before Thatcher, mm-hmm. where railroads had to get government approval for their fares, mm-hmm. uh, and airlines uh, were charging high fares because the government regulator approved it, and there wasn't real competition, and so it was just expensive. Uh, there have been improvements. Another example, uh, Milton Friedman wrote a book in 1962 called Capitalism and Freedom, in which he advocated eliminating licensure for doctors. This sounds amazing. How could you not license doctors? Anybody can practice medicine. And that sounds like a dangerous idea. But he said, look, medical care is too expensive. We didn't have... He probably opposed national health care, too. I'm sure he did. <laughs> but uh, uh, people couldn't afford medicine, so they weren't getting treated. So he said, it's better to have a quack doctor teach... That's what he said. Treating... Uh, and it'll get better through time. People will learn. Uh, now, the outcome of that was not deregulation. We still license doctors. But they've now moved, I don't know what you call them in the UK, but they have nurse practitioners and physician's assistants who have a separate kind of license that requires less training. And they, they can operate in a less uh, authority position. Uh, so that was an outcome. Of, reg- of the appearance of the un- improved understanding of how regulatory capture works, and that regulation is not always a good thing. So it's not a simple solution we have. I'm, we're just arguing that don't carry that example too far, uh, that uh, we, we do need regulation and we do need ethical authority in business. That'd be good. I mean, and I mean, because for me, when I, I read the book, it felt like you, you, you did this great first half where you demonstrated how markets are fundamentally flawed. So not just one or two isolated examples, but the very fact of the way the markets are set up are fundamentally flawed. And I just wonder you, you know, to what extent individuals uh, or civil societies mentioned can actually really make a fundamental difference to the markets. They can make differences around the edges, but, right. but what, what's the solution for a real deep understanding of those flaws and having a market which doesn't exploit them? Well, there's no simple solution. Let, let me go back to my example of slot machines. You might argue that slot machines should be allowed because people enjoy them. 
they obviously enjoy them because you see them there all the time. So wouldn't Jeremy Bentham approve of having slot machines? But the problem is when they first came out, they were everywhere. And it does seem it's against common sense. I mean, do we really want... Go to Las Vegas and <laughs> look at the slot machines where every, every convenience store, every gas station, the airport, the minute you get off the plane, you hear the slot machines. Uh, and it's a matter for social philosophy. I, I think most people, after you visit Las Vegas, you'll say, it's okay for a vacation. I don't want London to look like that. And I think that's right. Uh, I can't defend it. You know, we, uh, I don't know how to defend that in completely convincing terms, but it seems like common sense. And it's that kind of common sense expressed by a civil society that makes our free market system tolerable. Mm. I suppose it's slot machines, who are, I guess you can restrict where they are, but it gets a lot harder when it's online or something like alcohol because most people enjoy a glass of wine, but where do you, how do you regulate effectively so that you have alcohol up to, you know, available, but then it doesn't right. do the deep harm. So, well, now, one thing to do is to tax it. Now, in the U.S., there was a huge temperance movement, which culminated in prohibition. U.S. Uh, consumption of alcohol was outlawed for the U.S. Uh, from 1921 through 1933. But uh, it was eventually repealed as a failure because it was too easy for criminals to somehow get alcoholic beverages, and it just didn't work. When they repealed it, many people said, we'll substitute for it something gentler, which is a, a high tax on alcohol, which discourages the use. So for most people, the tax is high enough that you would think twice before getting drunk, just for the cost of it. It's going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, unfortunately, over time, the taxes have gone down. Because quietly behind the scene, alcohol producers lobby congressmen. And people just forget. Uh, so it's actually the federal tax on a glass of beer is only one cent, I think, in the U.S. today. It's just only there in, in name. States also tax it. But it's not, it's not high anymore. So that would be a simple thing. And I would say banning uh, ads for alcohol on, on television. Yeah. Uh, we, we've just lost. The problem with social movements is that they, they, they have their impetus. The temperance movement lasted for over 100 years. Uh, and it, now, we have some successes, too, in, in dealing with alcohol. We have better methods, but uh, I don't want to emphasize alcohol. This is something we do that's controversial. Temperance movement is really dead now, but we're still on to that mm. a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, any questions do we have? Jamie Plotnick from the Carbon Trust. I'm interested to get your view on um, one of the public enemies in terms of businesses at the moment, the energy companies, um, utilities particularly, and they rely on a model of fundamentally inertia selling where they tempt people in and they rely on the fact that most people will continue to pay whatever rate they happen to charge because they're not changing. Um, what's your view on inertia selling and what can be done about that? Yeah, um... Thank you very much. Uh, a really stimulating talk, Professor. I don't know if you've read the book called The Big Short. It's Michael Lewis. Yeah, it's the story of, for those that haven't read it, it's the story of the people that shorted the subprime. And, of course, that, that all written all over that is deception and manipulation. The amazing thing in there is another quality, which is blindness, the blindness of the regulator. 
And I'd be really interested to hear your take on that as well, because I think that's something, something slightly different to what you've been discussing. Thank you. Hi, my name is Nicholas Wardy. Um, two points. Um, as someone who's in a regulated industry, um, I can definitely tell you that um, uh, regulators are not Plato's philosopher's kings. Um, not, they are not omniscient, nor they are necessarily benevolent, um, and uh, there are challenges in dealing with them on a day-to-day basis. Second of all, I think regulation, there's another interesting aspect of it, particularly in the U.S., uh, there's certain values that are being Im- imposed through regulation on the U.S. which are, uh, I think, could be controversial. For example, the legalization of marijuana. Legal, uh, marijuana is now legalized in Colorado. Um, you know, crime has gone up by 15% in Denver over the past 12 months. Um, you know, oh, I don't know if correlation... Up in Denver where they've legalized it? Yeah, where they legalized it, yeah. Because a lot of people who... who you know, are in, involved in the marijuana business, have now gone to Colorado, they're selling it, it's clearly gone up. So regulators, the, regu- the government is imposing a certain set of values upon um, society, which is very much opposite, let's say, the temperance movement. So two points, regulators aren't philosopher kings, and number two, in fact, they impose a set of, re- set of values on society, which I think can be questionable to a lot of others, and do you think they really have the uh, kind of right to do that? Or what are the implications of that? So first, about... Um inertial selling. I actually don't remember that term, but okay, so in behavioral economics, the the, term might be um, habit formation or uh, uh, myopia or uh, there's terms similar that uh, those are part of the toolkit of marketers. Uh, And uh, I, I suppose I should say that marketers are not always bad people. Uh, it's a technology which invites abuse. But maybe I give you an inspirational example of inertial selling. This, as promoted by Dick Thaler and uh, Shlomo Benazzi, uh companies should set their employees up on plans that uh, put them in the right inertia. So, for example, in the U.S., pension plans tend to take the form of employee contributions matched by employer contributions, when you get a job in the U.S., you get a letter saying, please sign up for the employment plan. It's in your interest to do so because the employer will match your contribution. But like 30% of people don't ever do it. This is, sounds stupid, right? Why don't they? Well, they, they're in a pinch right now, and, they, and then just inertia carries them forward. And they end up retiring with nothing. So it, the simple thing is to change the letter. The letter, instead of saying, call this phone number or make an appointment, it says, we have signed you up automatically to this plan. We'll be deducting savings from your paycheck. Uh, and if you don't like this, call this number. and We can take you off the plan. Nobody calls the number. So Almost nobody. There will be somebody who may has a legitimate reason. So that's a, a creative response to the basic principle. Uh, so the big short uh, story about uh, why didn't regulators see the financial crisis coming? Or why did so many people see? Uh, well, I, I have to say, I saw it coming. <laughs> it's in my second edition. Not exactly with clarity of irrational exuberance, but uh, I thought that the housing market and the stock market were going crazy. It was, uh, I, I produced a, a plot of home prices in the United States back to 1890. The amazing thing is, nobody had ever done that. There was no 
plot. There was no series of home prices going way back. They were all started in 1970 or 1990 or something like that. You just didn't have any data. And I took the measure to link together a series and produce it. So why didn't more people do that? Uh, and uh, this goes to some uh, reality. Imagine that you're the head of a central bank, okay? Uh, you have a tight schedule every day. You, you have many responsibilities. And then someone pulls you on TV and interviews you. You don't want to look like a fool saying, I have no idea what home prices used to be. Nobody's paying any attention to that. So you kind of bluff your way through it. Uh, one thing I've learned from being on TV a lot is the TV people don't want to expose your bluff. When you don't know something, they don't challenge you on it there because they want you back uh, on another show. <laughs> and uh, the other thing is, uh, there's a, a book out now by Jillian Tett. It just came out. I don't know if you know her. She uh, is a columnist for the Financial Times. And now they've sent her to New York, and she lives in New York as a, a editor of American uh, edition of the Financial Times, something like that. But she has a new book called The Silo Effect, which is pointing out another problem with human nature. That is that we, we all join some department or division or group of people that we then spend our daily life with. In a modern society, it's technologically complex, so you need specialists of one sort or another. Then you want to excel within your group, and you want to learn the specialty really well. You turn yourself into an idiot savant. That is, all you know is our specialty. And you don't have time to uh, think about the fundamentals that underlie it. There are certain assumptions that are made by people who are expert in this, and you have to assume that they're right. I don't have time uh, to... Uh, you learn a little patter so that you can talk the talk. Uh, but then it'd be, I think this is a big reason. The, the, the problem with the financial crisis is that it made you, forced you to think beyond models of interest rates based on econometrics. It made you think about what's going on in people's minds. You had to think like a sociologist. You had to think about what are journalists doing? What kind of stories are they writing? What kind of stories get, get uh, public attention? Uh, and there weren't many people like that. Central bankers just didn't have time to do that. Someone had to really uh, make a case strong. And when they read it in the newspapers, then they think, uh-oh, maybe I was wrong. And then they start thinking. Nor did the head of Standard & Poor, and that's what Michael Lewis gives a lovely example. She just completely denied it. Well, on top of that, the rating agencies were giving AAA ratings. Uh, we talk about that in our book. There's also an aspect of what we call reputation mining, that uh, the, uh, the Moody's Investor Services was founded around 1900 by John Moody. I read his autobiography. He was a deeply religious man with a sense of social purpose. His friends told him when he founded Moody's, don't do that. You won't make any money with that. You're going to sell these volumes about bonds. You could make deals and make much more money. But in his, he, he was... Uh, very proud that he had made the right decision. He said, I did it out of principle. Well, not completely. I wanted to make money. He said, I wanted to be a millionaire too. But I wasn't going to do just anything to do that. And I just wanted to tell the truth about all these. I wanted to investigate them. I felt like doing it, and I did it. So he had one rule he had is never accept money from the people you rate. 
that rule fell by the wayside sometime uh, a couple decades after he died. Now they take money from the people they rate. And they're making a lot more money now. So that's what we call reputation money. The, the reputation of John Moody is still the reputation of the company. Fortunately, they've gotten better uh, uh, after the crisis. Let's, uh, I, 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 I didn't get to the last, uh, when you give me three. Uh, regulators are not platonic, platonic you said? Platonic philosopher kings. Pl- pl- um, they're, they're not these ideal people who are sort of... Right. I think you're right, but I should also say, I, I've had a bad experience with regulators, too, when I started a company called Macro Markets, and I had to deal with the SEC. What I, my, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which approved, my impression was they were reasonable people. I, I thought they were sympathetic to us, but they were bureaucratic, and they held us back for three years from launching a product. We just couldn't get a decision out of them. Uh, and it's, it's again, it's an agency that... They're also, why did they hold us up for so long? It's because they have a limited budget, and they, they, they have, they're not, I, we need to pay them more. Also, have we have to. Lawyers? They're mostly lawyers, yeah. Did you have to hire lawyers? To deal oh, we, oh, we uh, lost a lot of money. On, this was, a, uh, this was not a happy outcome for us. Uh, uh, the lawyers aren't even happy. We didn't even pay them completely. <laughs> they're not happy either. But, I mean, I think that this is part of... I'm not bitter about it. Uh, I think that... Uh, and I actually think these people... You leave it out of the story there, because if yeah. you're talking about regulation, you know, being the solution... That well, I didn't mean that it's, quote, the solution. I'm, I, I like business, self-regulation. And I think business lobbyists have a role, too. That uh, they, they express the interests of the business. And I was well aware that those interests are not orthogonal to public interest. But I think we need some balance. I think there isn't enough lobbying on behalf of workers anymore. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> More questions. Thank you. My name is Alice Dermulen. I'm not an economist, yeah. uh, but I have a question regarding the economics of uh, of nonprofit organizations in contemporary society. We see in the U.S. very very wealthy universities, which are technically speaking, uh, non-profit organizations producing basically very impoverished uh, uh, students who uh, have a hard time paying off their student loans, uh, as we see in the daily press these days. The problem is somewhat different in in the UK and, again, different in the rest of Europe. Uh, But in general, there seems to be uh, a question about the economics of non-profit organizations, especially when you look at FIFA as a non-profit organization shoving around billions uh, (laughs) around the world, uh, and uh, obviously also allowing a lot of profit-making organizations to profit from their non-profit goals. Uh, So do do you have a perspective on these matters? Because for me, being not an economist, this is very confusing. Yeah, hello. My name is Jonathan Carthill. You talked um, in terms of bringing economics closer to reality. Uh, how much do you think uh, the seeming obsession with economists with models is divorcing them from reality? Um, I mean, the, they're fine as a checklist and perhaps something to look at through a glass wall, a sort of parallel universe, but not something to invade re- actual reality. I mean, I went to talk recently by a... Uh, prominent economist from the States 
who said any situation, we have a model for that, which struck me a bit like uh, the saying to a man with a hammer, everything is a nail. Thank you. Thank you. My name is David Varga. <clears throat> I have uh, two quick questions. One is... Uh, uh, with regard to your comment, you constructed the index of house prices since the 1800s. Um, when I read some of these um, indices and information by sort of uh, historians of economics, uh, etc., I have uh, relatively limited confidence in uh, um, the inflation adjustments, uh, uh, whether, whether these numbers actually reflect um, what we can understand as accurate numbers today. Uh, what can you say um, sort of to reassure me about that? Uh, maybe specifically your process, but generally. And my second question is, is simpler. What do you think about sort of today's um, house prices, especially places like London or New York, yeah. and uh, the stock market in general? Thank you. So first of all, about Alice's questions about nonprofits. Uh, the student loan crisis in the U.S. is a dramatic uh, issue. Uh, a lot of people are very nervous about their future and are willing to pay a lot for an education. Uh, it sometimes isn't uh, up, up on, the, on the level playing field. Uh, one thing I talked to George about entering into our book is describing universities as fish, as fishers. And uh, he said... We shouldn't do that in our book, <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't include that. But to some extent, universities put up a public front that uh, uh, it creates uh, tensions in our society that are unfortunate. Uh, I sometimes think it'd be better if, if it weren't so... It, it's almost like a pedigree, like a title. You graduated from some elite university, and you put that on your... Everyone knows that. It, it just seems like it's... Un, uh, it's and, and there are all these rankings of universities now. There's something not right. And it wasn't invented by a benevolent philosopher who said, we should have a system like this. Uh, uh, now, so anyway, I, I, we need civil society who comment, like you just did, on these things. And uh, the outcome could be some change. Well, already there's been a change in our attitude toward the for-profit. At least these are non-profits. <laughs> They're not... Uh, they tend to expend their money on uh, grand, uh, pseudo-impressive buildings. And uh, uh, I, I feel bad for the people who are rejected, too. I, I somehow think that it's just not the way to start out life. It shouldn't be such a dramatic uh, phase. Young people are, are panicked by the process. of uh, So it, it should be kinder and gentler. But uh, you keep talking. And uh, that's the other, okay. Uh, about models driving us uh, further from reality. Well, there's, there's another kind of fishing that goes on in academia. I, I, I know that, uh, I, I think I was referring to uh, how John Hicks turned Keynes' uh, uh, book, which was very uh, deep and philosophical and ruminating, into an exercise in curve shifting. Uh, and I know uh, personally that the easiest way to teach a course is to is to mathematize it. First of all, I'll lose 80% of the class, and they'll be sitting there <laughs> puzzled, and they're worried about the exam. And then they can't complain about my faulty grading of the exam because there's a clear mathematical answer, and you didn't get it. Uh, if it were an essay exam, then, then it would be... The, so there's, there's some natural impulses 
to, to move in a certain way, out of self-interest in academia. But uh, uh, again, we should be aware of it and maybe we complain about it. So um, the thing about home prices, uh, you're right that uh, consumer price index, which we use to deflate nominal prices to real prices, uh, has a lot of shortcomings. And especially, I deflated from 1890 to the present. Over that long interval, there's a lot of potential biases in home price indices. But if you want to look then at, uh, at how uh, uh, real estate might be overpriced, there's other ways of deflating. You can divide by rent, uh, price to rent of a standard apartment, or a price to construction cost, uh, or a price to income. So there are other ways of deflating them. Now, I haven't carefully studied the London housing market, but I suspect they're all in... All of those ratios are high. Now, the problem in the UK, particularly, I, I'm, not a, I'm not studying this closely, is that there isn't much construction. Maybe there is. Now, you can say in London there's no more room for construction. Not so. You tear down three-story buildings. You put up. Uh, we just put up in New York uh, 432 Park Avenue, and if you come into New York, you'll see it. It looks like the tallest. It's amazing. It's a residential apartments. New York is sprouting them. New York skyline is going to change. You can do that to London, too, and it would bring home prices down. Now, apparently, Londoners don't like that concept of the city, but maybe you should get used to it. Maybe there should be a social movement. You need, London is a wonderful place. More people want to live here. Let's make it possible. And I can build uh, 100 432 Park Avenues here in London, and it would totally destroy the price of real estate in London. Uh, and uh, that would be a, a good thing for most people, <laughs> not for everyone. I think we've um, run out of time, but it's good to end on your vision for London, which is... <laughs> <laughs> so um, thank you very much. It was a really interesting talk and a good set of questions. So the book, Fishing for Fools, is a, will be available outside. It is a really excellent read with many more examples, so, so do buy it. And I'm sure you wouldn't mind signing copies yeah. after the session. So it just remains for me to thank again our excellent speaker, Robert Schiller. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the rsa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.